Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Industry Night with Nikki Nellis here on Real Fun DC. Thanks so much for joining me today. For those of you tuning in for the very first time, a little introduction. I am Nikki Nellis. I've been covering the DC food and wine and travel scene for the last 18 years. You may have heard my husband and I, David, on Foodie and the Beast. That's our radio show on 1500. We just celebrated 12 years on air. It is literally DC's only food and wine variety show. You may also hear me regularly on WTOP talking about trends and the latest things happening in the DC metro area. And uh, maybe you see me on social. That's at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. But probably where you know me the most is from the list, areyouonit.com, the online e-zine that covers every food and wine event happening in the DC metro area. We don't sell, we just tell. Um, and if you haven't been out and about yet, it is definitely time to start maybe dipping your toes in those waters. And I just wanna tell you where I have been eating. So this weekend I hit Fiola Mare for brunch and I have to tell you, it is just as good as it always is. Please make reservations in advance because there is a long wait, but Fabio Trabocchi and his team serve an incredible meal on the water. It is absolutely sublime and the service is top notch. I also finally stopped by the Persian restaurant in town, Rumi, which is really doing fantastic, authentic Persian cuisine. And last night I got to celebrate with the team from Anju. They had a huge fundraiser for Embrace, Embrace Race and uh, all the chefs in the city were there participating. Eric Bruner Yang, Danny Lee, Scott Trunot, Angel Barreto. What a night, it was amazing, and uh, raising funds for an incredible cause. Now, if you missed all that fun, then go to the listareyouwantit.com and you will not miss a thing. A couple things I wanna remind everybody, uh, there are other fundraisers happening in and around the city. Bammies is doing a huge fundraiser that you don't wanna miss. And Mike Rafiti, of course, is hosting a summer long fundraiser featuring chefs from all around the country. Uh, every month you can find out about all the different fundraising that he is doing also for Embrace Race, which again is really an amazing organization. Do not forget Mother's Day is coming up and you do need to plan in advance. And there are bodacious brunches happening all over town. Fiola Mare is not the only one that's doing it. You can check all of that on the list or you on it.com. And as I say on every show, I say it at the beginning, I say it at the end, and I really mean it. Support your local restaurants and retailers. It's been a tough year. It is finally getting better, but we are just at the beginning. Okay, so in case you're living under a rock and you don't know what's happening around town, let me tell you, uh, it's the season to forage. And what to do with all that bounty? Well, I have some answers for you because Danielle Lieberson of Lindera Farms is going to be joining me later on the show. He and his cult-like following for all of his vinegars and sauces is going to talk about what's happening for him, especially during the pandemic, 
all the things he's foraging and uh, what he's producing these days. Of course, he's not going to share his foraging places because that's a big secret. Um, and while we're keeping with secrets, the Michelin Guide has announced its stars and Big Gourmand Awards. And in keeping with the secret theme, an anonymous chef inspector is going to fill us in on who got what and how they went about judging during a pandemic. So we'll also be talking about the restaurant experience uh, for a chef like Ryan Rotino, who had a star at Fresca and congrats to Ryan. He now has two stars for the recently opened jaunt. So Chief Inspector of North America, are you there? I am here. It's great to be with you, Nikki. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's so nice to have you. So listen, today is a really, really big day. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit for people who maybe have heard of the Michelin Guide, but don't know what it is or, or what it means? Can you give us a little bit of background? Because you're a tire company. We are a tire company. Yes, we are. Absolutely. But um, in addition to that, the Michelin Guide is a um, it's a guide that promotes movement, it promotes um, getting out there in the world, it promotes dining and restaurants. So the Michelin Guide is a, curate, is a curated creation, a selection of restaurants that are um, put together by an expert team of inspectors that travel the world and um, right. compile a selection of restaurants in different distinctions and launch those in each, each location yearly. Okay, so this year is a little different. How did Michelin go about taking what they normally do and, and, and still offer it? Well, different, absolutely different is an understatement, I would say. This year has been unprecedented. It has affected the restaurant industry in ways that we've never seen before. Um, you know, the, the pleasure of restaurant dining is is being together and, and socializing and more than anything, the pandemic and its effects have really, um, really affected that seriously and almost brought it to a stop at some points of the year. So we're really happy to be back um, with the Michelin Guide through Washington DC for 2021. Um, you're right, things have changed. Um, we have had to pause our selection at one point and restart. But all in all, our inspection criteria remains the same. The Michelin inspectors, when they go to a restaurant, um, when they're looking at the various distinctions, it can be a plate, it can be a bib gourmand or a star. But what the inspectors are looking for when they ex experience their meal is what is the quality of products that are being offered, um, the harmony of flavors on the plate, the mastery of technique that's on display, um, the personality of the chef as it comes through in their cuisine. And we're also looking for consistency between visits because if we have a restaurant in the selection that we added first in 2017, we want to go back to that restaurant and we want, we want to have the same experience level that we had before. Now, that being said, we're always happy to watch the evolution of restaurants. And if we find that a restaurant has um, impressed us more than before, then then you know there's possibility that restaurant can perhaps um, be upgraded from its current distinction. But what's very important is consistency um, from visit to visit. Well, so what about hospitality? How does hospitality play in that? Or is like, because I'm sure people look at the list and have lots of questions. So 
you know, how do you go about comparing apples to apples or apples to oranges when it comes to dining? Because, uh, you know, a fine dining French cuisine in a little Washington three star is very different from other experiences. So how, how do you go about comparing these things? Great question. Um, all in all, when we look at the restaurants, what we are, what we are applying the criteria um, is to the food. It's to the food on the plate. When I talk about the quality of product, when I talk about the harmony of flavors, the technique and personality, I'm talking about what's actually being consumed, that the food that's being presented on the plate. Of course, experience is very important. Um, diners would, you know, are looking for different types of experiences depending on their situation. But when we, you know, look at luxury settings and tabletop or casual settings or, you know, a more uh, relaxed atmosphere, those aren't taken into account when we discuss the awards. However, those are reflected in our summaries and in texts of the restaurant and on the website to give our consumers more, um, more of a, an illustration of the restaurant and what they will experience when they go there. Well, and so when you guys were doing it this year with the pandemic play in D.C., you know, there were lots of restaurants that couldn't open their doors or, or didn't open their doors, but they did a lot of takeaway. Did that play into your judging this year? Since the beginning of the pandemic, the inspection team has been really sensitive to each market and in close contact with the restaurants and our selections to be sure that we were informed of openings and closures, new menu items. Um, so, you know, communication was, was key for this year to keep in contact with our community of chefs. I will say on the note of takeout, um, takeout was not considered in the restaurant's overall inclusion of the for the guide. Um, however, the Michelin Guide featured restaurants providing takeout across the country at the various distinctions of plate, bib, and star via a new filter that we added to our website. And I will say that the switch to takeout, even for restaurants that didn't traditionally offer it, was something that was really interesting to us, and it happened quite quickly. It showed that restaurant owners could be adaptable and creative during the shutdown period by pivoting from traditional service to something that was perhaps uh, less traditional for them or new. Well, actually, I think you, you mentioned something that's very true. I mean, there were those who were able to turn on a dime and make it happen. I mean, nobody had a lot of time to figure out to go if it wasn't something they traditionally did. But there were those who, who uh, were flexible with it and understood that you can't do a four course, you know, fine dining experience out of a box and you do have to um, change and be flexible in order to, to bring that sort of hospitality that you're so well known for in your restaurant to the person's table in their home, right? Um, you know, for people who may not be totally clear, what does the bib, how does the bib gourmand play? Like, what does that mean? I know plate means in the book, but a lot of restaurants like kind of poo-poo it because they all want a bib or they want a star. So can you just, it just better explain each level so that the lay person understands when they get the Michelin guide, how to best use it? Absolutely. My pleasure. The plate is defined as good quality cooking. You'll have an impressive meal. Um, the bib gourmand category is, um, is a level of meal that offers good quality for the value 
of the, of the meal. So for instance, you could go to a restaurant and have two courses and dessert or a glass of wine for around $40 or so. And, and it's, the, it's the, the, the meeting of quality and value that designates a bib gourmand. Okay. And then, but the stars have nothing to do with price, right? I mean, you can have an incredible meal, but it, it doesn't, since it's all about the food, am I correct or incorrect? You are absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people think if they get a, if it's a star restaurant that you're going to be paying a fortune, that's not always the case, correct? That, that is absolutely not the case. For example, we have starred restaurants that, you know, it's possible to have a $60, $70 meal. Um, and it's, of course, possible to spend more in other establishments. But the just because a restaurant has a star, two stars or three stars, um, doesn't automatically mean that you're going to empty out your wallet to have, to have that experience. And just before we wrap up, uh, Chief Inspector, I feel like I need to make some sort of joke about like Pink Panther or something, but then I'm totally aging myself by doing that. Um, could you, is there any restaurant that's on the list that got a star that's new this year that you're excited to see on the list? I would say that um, for DC, the selection there has really, really impressed us. Um, Chef has impressed us with their adaptability, their resilience, their creativity, and the new openings this year were successful and impressive despite the, the incredible challenges of the past year. So I'm, I'm just excited about all the new additions to the selection this year, be it the plate, the bids, and the stars. But in terms of the stars, we do have five new ones this year. We have at the two-star level Jaunt, which is from Chef Ryan Rutino, which has, was a truly amazing experience and uh, quite youthful in its existence. But we're really happy to see that that it really impressed upon us um, a high level of quality there. Um, we also have Crane. We have Rooster and Owl. Um, those are both really interesting restaurants that kind of have a Spanish theme to them. We have Chiquette, which is also Spanish. Um, and we have El Cielo, which is um, Colombian, and really uh, it's the lo first location in the U.S. for uh, Chef Juan Manuel Barrientos. He has a location in D.C. as well, but um, this location that opened up in D.C. was really wonderful to us. And I'm sorry, I correct myself, Rooster and Al is actually not Spanish, but it is a contemporary restaurant that yeah. has these really lovely global flavors. So. <laughs> It's okay. Excited for all of it. I'm excited for all of it. It's a lot to keep. I mean, it's a lot to keep it uh, under your uh, purview when you're talking about all these different restaurants. But yes, all the restaurants are well deserving. And um, Chief Inspector, I really appreciate your time today. Um, obviously, uh, if you could let everybody know, because you guys have an app and uh, you're online, so you don't always have to have the book in hand. Can you tell everybody where they can find everything, please? Absolutely. So you can go to guide.michelin.com for the full selection for stories. And we also do have a Michelin iOS app, which is launched. Um, and you can go to our Instagram account as well to um, find up all the latest updates. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, you're my very first anonymous uh, interview, but that was terrific. Uh, thank you for your time. This is Nikki Nellis. It's Industry Night on Real Fun DC. When we come back, I've got Ryan Rotino. We're going to talk about what that star means. It's Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC.
Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. We're back on Industry Night on Real Fun DC. You know, you can follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all the delicious things happening in and around the DC metro area. So as I promised in the beginning of the show, I got Ryan Rutino with me. You know him from Bresca and the recently opened jaunt. And he got a star for Bresca. And it is amazing that he opened jaunt during the pandemic, and he got two stars. So, you know, yay for Ryan. <laughs> Hi, Thank Ryan. So, okay, so for people who are not out and about, let's give them your 411. Let's talk a little bit about um, you opening Bresca, the style of restaurant it is. And then, I mean, Bresca is already high end, and then you went higher with Jaunt. So can we talk a little bit about both? Yeah, so Bresca, Bresca has been here for, with COVID time, sometimes I get a little little lost in my years right now, but it's, it's pushing four years will be September already. So it's gone by so fast. Wow. Um, yeah, it just seems like it's insane to me. Uh, we're focusing on Neo Bistro, like Parisian French aesthetic, just trying to cook, um, very like modern versions of classic French dishes, you know, really like digging into our training as a team, kind of going up through cooking um, and, and putting a spin on those things and use it, utilizing still the same ethos as in both restaurants, sourcing the best ingredients, but downstairs a little bit more French, a little bit more indulgent, always foie gras, always those, those delicious things. Um, and then we opened upstairs uh, last year in July of, of, of 2020. That was exciting. Uh, we started with the Bresca pop-up just to kind of get the space functioning and really um, you learn to utilize it best because we were opening in, in kind of something that there was no advice we could seek. So uh, learning it all from scratch. And then we transitioned into the full jaunt tasting menu when we brought the Bresca dining room back to life uh, and were with guests inside, outside as it kind of flowed through its cycle, carry out and all those things. Um, upstairs, a little bit different, uh, like trying to feature as many uh, gorgeous ingredients that we can find from across the globe. Um, very, very luxurious in, in, um, in items on the menu, caviars, the, the best Wagyu we can try and source, Japanese seafood at its prime, communicating many days a week with the Japanese markets, um, just trying to find like, what's at its peak, what's the highest marbling, what's the, what's the fattiest fish in these moments that's gonna cook the best for us. We have a wood fire upstairs, so we try and utilize that to the best of our abilities on as many things as possible uh, without becoming you know, overly, overly grilled. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's only 14 seats upstairs, very intimate, very focused. The cooks are serving the guests with the service team. Everything's happening right in front of you. I think there's exactly like 12 feet, four inches from the, from the people as we cook to the guests. So it's very, very intimate. Yeah, it's almost like a sushi counter in a, in a sense. So, but when COVID happened for Bresca, how did you go, go about like, cause it's a small restaurant and we're at 25%. So right. how are you doing that? And how did you, how did you take your concept and put it into takeaway? Cause I, Think that that's a real tough one yeah so the 
Bresca, the, I mean, we've been operating at 25% this whole time. The luxury that we had was to our occupancy permit, we never utilized it. So like it was more of an aspect of making sure we were social distancing um, and, and doing the right thing in that sense than it was the permit because the permit that we have is kind of like rather large um, in a sense for the amount of seats we can have. So it was more about making sure people felt comfortable and space. Exactly because of the space as a whole, because that's a yeah. big, oh, so exactly. you, I, I get it. Cause that's a big yeah. space. I remember we the policy like, space. It was big. Exactly. Yeah. We had like 9,000 total square feet here. Right. So like we didn't have a problem really from a occupancy standpoint. It was just more about making people feel safe uh, and distancing them as, as best as we could. Um, and that's what we did. I mean, we spaced our tables out rather ag aggressively and just try and like, cause we couldn't, we and still don't, we're, we're teammates is the biggest thing, uh, looking for teammates and having enough team to really, um, have an, even enough tables, you know, was, was a tough thing at some points, um, and still is. So like, we just, we kept it small and we just tried to focus, focus, focus on the details, you know, and really, if you were dining, we wanted to make sure that you were having an amazing experience. And, uh, and then converting that into carryout was, was rather unique. Um, we treated it, we just talked about it every day. If you're going to plate it, you're going to plate it gorgeously. So we just swapped porcelain for, for boxes, right? And right. we put a lid on it you know the cloche has always been there the cloche is in so many three michelin star restaurants right <laughs> so the, our cloche was a lid for the box you know and we you are i have to be honest with you you're a rarity because you know i know a lot of guys of your ilk who are cooking in that capacity and you know there were some people who were angry about it they were they're like my food doesn't belong in a box right like it they don't want yeah. it in a box and like I personally felt that you could taste their anger. Like, you know, sometimes like I would open it up and I'd be like, somebody's not happy about how they get to do this. And, you know, I would never say anything, but right, right. You tell when somebody's not cooking with a smile, you know what yeah, I mean? We felt blessed to be cooking in general and to be like getting the support of the community and people embracing what we were doing was, mm -hmm. was push enough for us to keep going and keep trying to serve beautiful meals, whether it was on the plate or in the box and really just no matter what, give you something to smile about when you got home and we tweezered it out and we garnished everything and we tried to do the right thing all the time. And, you know, we got a lot of feedback. There was like, this is so gorgeous. You know, it's like uh, when we got home and, you know, depending on how you walk home, you know, like uh, it could stay beautiful or it couldn't, but you know, that some of those things, I think people were super understanding that like, you know, when they got home, if they, you know, were walking their dog and flipped their boxes over that it wasn't going to be gorgeous any longer, right? right? But we got a lot of that feedback that people were like happy to see that the, they could tell there was like attention to the detail there. And we tried to, you know, just carry that through as if we were in the restaurant. And that, that was always my big, I was just like, the cloche is now a plastic lid in 2020, but that's what it is. And it was just fun to be, you know, still doing our thing and feeling the support of everybody and constantly being able to support like our small community of farmers and fishermen as well uh, mm -hmm. while doing this, who also felt the effects of everything that was going on. No, I totally agree with you. Um, and I, you know, I think it was really um, brave to open up not only a new concept, but also um, a concept where you're serving 18 courses, right? Like that's, um, that's brave.
Uh, yeah, we were building already, you know, like we right. had it. It was like, like we're already doing it. Right, we were doing it. So it was a matter of like how, and when we first, it made sense in the beginning because there wasn't enough confidence to fill, if you will, the Nebraska dining room because like people weren't dining out as much in the moment. So it was like, can we support the team needed for the Nebraska dining room in, right now in that climate? Right. Right. Upstairs, it was a little bit easier, if you will, to get 12 diners or, or, you know, we're not, we weren't always full, but like if you get eight or 12 or 14, like if the counter can only do 14, so if you got eight, it still felt like there's people yeah. here, you know, right. and like downstairs, if you only had eight in the dining room, it felt like an empty banquet, you know, so it just like didn't feel as like uh, personable and comfortable. So we tried to wait it out a little bit. And in that way, it kind of helped us climb back into the muscle memory of doing it all over again too, because you kind of lost that as well, right? Like, oh, I bet you guys are like a, a ballet back there, right? Yeah, we always do the things. You have your dance steps, and everybody, you know, does it together. But if you got to practice, yeah, exactly, and that helped us kind of ease back into it. And carry out's a different dance for sure. You know, carry out for Thanksgiving of seven hundred or eight hundred is a completely different dance than the dining room for thirty. Oh, I you bet. Know, so. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit. I mean, congratulations again on both. On, well, you, you're actually a three-star chef, even though it's not yeah. the, the three stars with a comma, you know. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about that. So when Bresco got its star, what did that mean for you as a business? Because I think for a, a lot of people who don't know, you know, it may sound like getting a star is just bragging rights, but I think there's a real my understanding is there is an incredible impact to a restaurant's business when they yes. get a star. Am I, am I wrong? No, not at all. <laughs> the, um, yeah, the, the, there's obviously like the pride factor, right? Like, I mean, this is something like not everyone sets out to, it's not everyone's goals, right? And rightfully so, like everyone has different reasons and, you know, we're cooking for, to make you smile, right? And to do the right thing all the time. But the, this is something that like for myself, I've set out, to I've wanted for a long time since I was like 18 years old and started culinary school um but yeah for the business I think it has an even it has a, a huge impact I mean it, uh, an even larger impact uh I the I mean what was it I think and Maru knows I these some of these details but I think it was like we got our first star at Bresca Within three weeks of receiving the star, we had booked over 4,000 reservations for the following three months. I mean, is that insane? That is just bonkers, right? The, is it, but that's business saving, right? It's crazy. So like, yeah. Like, that's insane. But that's what I've heard from some other people. So now, yeah. like a place like Jaunt with your little bit of seats. Right. That's just, I mean, because I assume, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I assume that these reservations are not I'm sure there's a percentage that are locals but I gotta imagine that a lot of it are tourists who yeah that's what's so amazing the Michelin guide that's what it's they do international travel guide right so right. I mean people look at the guides and when they're going on vacation and they travel from all over and DC is obviously like a pretty large tourist attraction in itself so to have people reading the book whether it's digital or prints, you know, and, and seeing the restaurants in there and you see diners that come in with books in their back pocket, you know, that they, right. they were specifically seeking Michelin starred experiences. Um, 
So it's huge, you know, and I think like uh, that it lets you operate with a touch more confidence is what I always say. Like when you're in that phase of growing, you're always like, how many, you know, how many pounds of this should I buy? Or how many pounds? I don't know what the weekend's going to look like. Now it's kind of like the weekends are, are sold out, you know, and like. That's so, but that, that is, it's a little bit of both, right? It takes the pressure off of your finances for your business, which is Absolutely. so important. Right. But then you also have a little bit of pressure because A, you want to keep that star. Exactly, right? yeah. The pressure and on the team to maintain and or, or exceed, right? And keep pushing to try and earn more stars. <laughs> well, I mean, plus, I mean, listen, I, I, I'm not taking a moment of it away from you. Like two stars for John is amazing. But like you have two stars. Now you have to keep them like that. Yeah. yeah. Now, now we, now's the, that's what we said this morning. We celebrate and, you know, we toast. And then now it's like the real work starts, you know, right. even because like you want to maintain the stars. But at the same time, like when you had one, like when we had one downstairs, we were like, okay, now we want to get two. Right. Well, and then like now that we were going to have a taste of two, the ultimate goal is to stand next to Patrick, right? And get three, you know? So like, and then, then I'd, I have to ask Patrick, I don't know, like, what, what does he do now, you know, but like, uh, <laughs> from a party at first tie, that's what you do. You do, yeah, exactly. that's that's you do. Yeah. right. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Listen, Ryan, I thank you so much for your time. And I, I had to tell you, I'm just, you've been on my other show a bunch of times and I've known you for a long time and I am so personally thrilled for you and all your success. So congratulations to you and your team. Please tell everybody where they can find Bresca and John. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're located uh, 19. So everyone enters through Bresca, 1906 14th Street. And then at the host stand, they kind of direct you in the manner of where you're booked. Bresca or John, we have a little secret entrance that takes you upstairs to John's and it starts the experience from that moment uh, right here in Northwest DC. Excellent. Ryan Rutino, Bresca and John's Michelin star chef winner. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Nikki Nellis on Industry Night on Real Fun DC. When we come back, we're going foraging with Lindera Farms. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Real Fun DC. <sighs> Serving up thought for food. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey, and we're back on Industry Night on Real Fun DC with Nikki Nellis. That's me. You should be following me at NYCCI, N-E-L-L-I-S, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all the latest and greatest that I am eating, wearing, and going in the DC metro area and beyond. Uh, so we just talked Michelin, and uh, we talked about the stars dropping. We talked about Ryan Rotino and his amazing stars. But now we're going to talk to somebody who actually gives products to Michelin star chefs. We have with us uh, Daniel Lieberson. He is with Ladera Farms. And Daniel has actually been on this show before, but it's been quite a while. Um, and since so, the end of the world, yeah. I know, right. It was before the end of the world. So, Daniel, tell me a little bit about... Uh, Lindera Farms for those I mean I have I think I have every product you've ever made because I love it but tell me a little bit about um, Lindera Farms for those who uh, are not aware of it. Yeah so basically what I do at Lindera Farms is I take locally and sustainably made agricultural products from throughout Virginia, Maryland, and West Virginia 
uh, I brew them into uh, shelf stable pantry goods. So that can be a vinegar and that's that's kind of how we got started. And then mm-hmm. over, over time, it's turned into soy sauce, hot sauces, fermented salts. Uh, we started doing barbecue sauces, vinaigrettes. It's just kind of the whole range. And the idea really was, uh, um, you know, I was a, a, a line cook for years and I worked uh, in a number of restaurants around the Mid-Atlantic and up and down the East Coast. And every chef, uh, you know, loves the idea of sustainability and loves the idea of sort of locavorism. Um, but the truth is it's always been really hard to find pantry goods inside the area and especially ones that are really reflective of the region that you're in. So if you luck out for a long time, right, you'd find somebody who's doing, you know, uh, a red wine vinegar in your area and it's still, you know, their vitis vinifera, for the European grapes, et cetera. This was an idea to really kind of emphasize the region that we're in and turn those products into uh, the kind of, uh, you know, dry goods that, that Michelin star chefs tend to go for, but, but never really had before. Right. But so, I mean, it's such an amazing idea and it feels like, you know, over the last 10 years, there's been more makers out there. You know, I I consider you a maker, like somebody who saw a hole and is filling it Um, because, you know, I never had ramp vinegar before, you know what I mean? Or elderflower vinegar, like you do all these varieties of uh, vinegars and now sauces and soy sauces and all that kind of stuff. and it's, it's an amazing thing, but how did you get started in it? Like, how did you start? I mean, making vinegar is not something everybody does. So how did you get started doing it? Well, you know, it's funny. I, uh, it, it's, it's kind of nostalgia inducing to, to listen to Ryan and listen to the, the inspector you were dealing with for Michelin. Cause my goal, uh, was originally to, to burn Michelin stars as a chef. And one of the things that sort of got me, uh, uh, experimenting in that vein was working for uh john shields down at townhouse way back when and oh wow i would i would i would literally part of my job was to go out and forage ingredients uh that we were going to be using later that evening and this was you know a restaurant of of me and three other people and then john and karen uh and um part of that process basically became at the end of every night realizing I was going to have to repeat the process the next day with, you know, sometimes unused flowers that I had been like run off of a property to try and get. So eventually if I'm going to risk my life for these things, I might as well find a way to preserve them. And so vinegar became the first and kind of most obvious approach because, you know, it's, 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 it's fairly easy to uh, uh, convert a, anything with sugar can be made into a vinegar with, with, with time and patience and some, uh, um, uh, some technique. And so flowers really maintain their aromatics. Um, if you're giving them uh, uh, some kind of ester net to essentially trap them and that's where vinegars came from. And then slowly you kind of build from there, right? So it's like, okay, well, I can do this with flowers. You know, I work with ramps all the time. I pickle ramps all the time, but I always have to pickle them in white wine vinegars. So what's stopping me from making a ramp vinegar to ramps in and mm-hmm. further emphasize their initial flavors and, and, and kind of build on them. And so that's, that's kind of how one thing led into the other. And so you start to just sort of experiment with the things that I was already playing around with as a blind cook or the processes where I felt like, well, you know, I was using a red wine here, but, but it would make more sense to try and make a vinegar that has more to do with the, the product that we're working with in region, right? So why am I using a red wine vinegar for a raspberry when I should be using a raspberry vinegar for a raspberry and so on? Right. Very, very interesting. So now, so you're making all these products. How did you evolve from vinegars to soy sauce i mean is it fermentation what where was your head at um a a little bit of it being uh add uh at at work and then uh some of it being you know um a lot of the same uh 
kind of procedural occurrences that happen for a chef happen for me too. So sometimes as a chef, you know, you will um, get a farmer that you're working with or, 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 a local, or a distributor or, you know, any number of potential sources who will come along with a new product or, you know, something that they're overgrown on. Um, you know, Patrick O'Connell tells a great story about, you know, coming into having to make his own blueberry vinegar because somebody comes along with an overorder of blueberries. And so you got to get creative. With the soy sauce, um, uh, uh, Heinz Tomet from Next Stop Produce or, uh, out in uh, Newburgh, Maryland, uh, kind of longtime staple of the DC restaurant scene, Salo uses their stuff, a lot of places do. Uh, he was starting to work on soybeans uh, in addition to grains and, um, you know, rice. And uh, between, you know, the uh, organic black soybeans he was growing, the grains he's growing, and then J.Q. Dickinson uh, out in West Virginia doing mine salt. That's those are your staples for soy sauce at that point. And so mm. for me, it kind of seemed intuitive to try and to, to take a crack at it. And it gave me sort of another vehicle to play around with. I had wanted to incorporate soybeans into other stuff too. So that became a vinegar as well. Um, mm. And then for things like hot sauce, you know, I'm, hot sauces are largely vinegar based. And in fact, maybe almost exclusively, um, probably not exclusively, but uh, <laughs> that became sort of a thing where it's like, well, I'm already, you know, you think about vinaigrettes or hot sauce at scale right? It's white distilled vinegar, it's apple cider vinegar, it's, it's really low quality input. So then the question became, okay, what happens when we're taking really high quality peppers that are being grown organically from the farm at Sunnyside, which is just, you know, 20 minutes from me, and then mm -hmm. throw them in with vinegars made from those same peppers in some cases. And you wind up with these like explosively flavored and interestingly, like not insanely spicy hot sauces these you know uh, when we started do when i started doing them i was actually really kind of floored that the heat wasn't nearly as prominent as the sort of diversity of flavor we were getting out of them so you know this time of year it's rampant green chili uh, yeah. uh later in the later in the fall it's going to be um you know fish peppers and tomatoes we do a scotch bonnet and hickory it's it, it, we can get pretty playful because the quality of the inputs are so good because we have control over all of them so everything kind of steps one thing into the next into the next well, I think you bring up an interesting point about hot sauces, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole because I could on hot sauces. But you know, yeah, but there is, um, you know, sort of this concept that you know, hot sauces are supposed to blow your brains out. You know what I yes. mean? That it's supposed to be super hot, but that's not really what it's supposed to do. Hot sauces is, is an accent. It's 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 yes. a waking it's a up of flavors, right? Like it's a it's another way, like a salt. It's just another way to, you know. Well, wake up your sure. food and there's 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 historically a lot of um uh, sort of preservative components to chilies and and, and and hot sauces um in more antiquated senses there's definitely evidence for uh you know basically being sort of a rancidity cover um but right. like when when you think about it in the in the modern context right you're absolutely right what's basically happened is um and, and this is actually you know i i uh, I'm, I'm i'm gonna try and take uh what information I can remember from having dated a neuroscientist for a few years. Um, there is a neurochemical aspect to eating a chili, right? Capsaicinoids are, are a toxin. They're, they're a low grade sure. toxin, um, but they are, your body is literally reacting to a toxin when you put one of those into your body. And as a result, right, to counter pain, your body produces dopamine endorphins. Um, you get little hits of, I guess, uh, neuroepinephrine, if I'm remembering right. So you're okay. developing, well, so, so you're developing a reaction, right? And what happens is it's not so much that you, you, um, 
uh, uh, getting an addiction to hot sauce, which is something that you see, right? It's that you're you're developing these these uh, reactions to the reaction itself, and ultimately it can become addictive. So in the same way that like a person can chase you know a buzz or a high. The same thing can be true of hot sauces. And the problem is that's created this weird incentive structure for a whole industry built around a line of products. So like there's this like ever like, this never ending list of like synthetic ways to derive capsaicinoids to basically cause your head to explode. And for hey. some reason, nobody at any point in this process has said, hey, these all taste terrible. Why are we making them? Why are we doing them? Right, right. Totally with you. It should be about flavor, not about making your head explode. Exactly. Um, we're on the same page. Okay, so, but let's talk about, I mean, so clearly you're gathering, your your um, commitment to working with sustainable or organic or local products is very, very important to you uh, and you forage. So for the yes. uninitiated, foraging is like, like a weird little world that y'all live in you know you foragers so you're very secretive right you're very secretive about where you forage and you don't tell people like where you are so um which sounds a little dangerous uh to uh the city mouse but um (laughs) right so tell us about foraging like were you a forager like clearly you were foraging before but like now don't you have to forage like in such mass quantities like how do you how do you take your passion for foraging make it your profession and then let the business grow how does that work it's it's tricky because on the one hand right i think a lot of people who uh become foragers start with it as some form of a hobby and obviously anytime you professionalize your hobby uh, you wind up in a dynamic where it really starts to lose some of the traits that you, you enjoyed in the first place. And you do have to figure out questions of scale. Um, to some degree, the answer to the questions of scale have been to not scale. Uh, so, um, you know, right now, this time of year, we've got things like violets, we have trout lilies, we have, um, you know, we've passed the season for witch hazel, that's kind of like right at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, getting those in the, the quantities that, that we need uh, for, become uh, you know, given what demand is uh, basically an impossibility. So we just have to tell people, you know, it's a small batch that we make. And once we run out, we run out and then we'll have more next year, ideally. For something like the ramps, um, you know, ramps are pretty plentiful, but they're a spring ephemeral. So if you're uprooting them, if you see people taking the bulbs out, then yeah, they're not going to be there the next year and gradually you'll wind down a colony. So for me, that's a practice question. So what I'll do is I'll go out with a, literally a box cutter and we, we uh, 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 clip the leaves and only the leaves this way. Um, the box cutter is because it's a sharp enough thing to where if you're giving a plant a clean cut, it's less likely to infect and kill the rest of the plant. Sure. So the idea is just sort of, uh, you know, as we scale, you have a you have a, a sustainability question that you have to answer. But even then, you know, there are still limitations to what you're going to be able to get. So you have to diverse to be willing to diversify what you're making to some degree. So a lot of what I do now versus like when I got started um, is uh, centered around farms and region. And the idea mm-hmm. there is as we grow those relationships, we get to frankly make kind of weirder requests. Um, so, you know, we've gotten to do more to that hot sauce point around chilies. Um, we, uh, when some, when a farmer comes along with something new and experimental that they're excited about, that becomes something that I can, can, can buy a crop of and process that. And then, you know, when we run out of the ramp vinegar, which we pretty much do every year, uh, or the ramp hot sauce, et cetera, you know, that's the kind of thing where it's like, all right, well, I am out of that, but I do have these things for you to try out. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of as close to an answer as 
I think I have in, in, until we get to the point to where we can start to specifically try and cultivate these things, in which case it won't be foraging, obviously, but at least that'll be the baseline premise for it. I think it's, it, it's kind of worth saying. Um, anything that you can forage can theoretically be cultivated. The question is whether or not there's demand for it or if there's de demand to change practice. Um, right, or if you should, right? Like, yes. I mean, listen, everybody goes nuts every year about the ramps. Absolutely. I, I, I get it. I mean, I'm in the food world, so I have to tell you that I get it. But like, <laughs> I do feel like, first of all, when you go to the farmer's markets, they pull those bulbs right out. I mean, the bulbs are attached. And they shouldn't be. I, I, I they like this is a look i mean you know we were we were, we're talking about sustainability and we're going to you know touch on the nature conservancy but one of the things that i come back to a lot is the, the if you want to understand you know consumptive behavior and, and its downfalls you know look at where we are in terms of climate change and, and and like the solutions needed to get us to where uh uh we can hit a point of of, of climate sustainability again are absolutely massive and the problem is actually like that's that's a perfect encapsulation of it right it's, it's, it's someone out in Western Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, upstate New York, going out, uprooting these things. And then right now, if you go out there, there are fields of them. You wouldn't, you, right. you'd think to yourself, oh, I'll have these things forever. And then 20 years from now, we're gonna look you at are. these things and go, hey, where'd they go, right? right. Right. No, and it's very interesting. That's it in a nutshell. Well, so let's talk about your partnership with the Nature Conservatory. What, what made you decide yeah, to absolutely. do that? Well, so, so the Nature Conservancy actually helps us put together the property itself. Um, uh, this was originally a cattle farm. And uh, like a lot of cattle farms in the, in the Chesapeake Bay watershed area, uh, you know, it was free range, but in the sense that, you know, the cattle were allowed to uh, basically kind of run into these streams and, you know, defecate, destroy the embankments, really kind of, when you take a look at the, the, the largest contributor of um, pollution into, the, Chesapeake, into the, the, the bay itself and into the watershed, it's runoff from, from agricultural operations, right? Mm. And so uh, what my family did was we came and we basically rebuilt the entirety of the stream. And Nature Conservancy really was uh, a huge factor in our capacity to not only uh, devise the project itself and, and in some cases find grants and, and, and opportunities for it, but also, you know, in, 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 in after, um, after completing the project and, and creating this mitigation bank, um, you know, they come in and they check on the property and its utility. And because the property itself is governed by an easement, even after we're gone, um, the property itself will still remain a nature reserve. And the conservancy is the group that's ultimately going to assure that it maintains that. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, you know, extremely grateful to them. They were, they were absolutely critical in, in kind of creating, you know, what became the baseline for Lindero. The, my family owns, owns the property itself, but the company was derived from the idea of being able to work off all these native plants that we've reintroduced to the, to the, the farm itself. So for, for, you know, for me, it's, it's, we're now at the scale to where, you know, uh, when we got started, I think giving uh, any kind of donation as a percentage of revenue would have been amount, amount to me giving them like 50 bucks and saying, hey, thanks. Uh, but now, you know, we're, we're doing a bit better and, you know, we want to start making it a more routine, um, you know, function for us to be contributing back into um, the Nature Conservancy specifically. And then I think in the longer run, you know, projects that um, are either nonprofit or even, you know, in some cases, um, you know, NGOs or other opportunities for us to, to contribute to trying to fight climate change such as it is. Well, I mean, it's sort of right place, right time. And we, we are recording this um, show on Earth Day. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, you know, we have an administration in place that, you know, has 
good ideas when it comes Let's to change climate change. Yeah. Yay. I mean, I supported 150%. So I'm very excited for it. Um, Danielle, I, I'm so appreciative of all that you do. I am a incredible uh, fan and consumer, and I know you have a cult-like following. Um, but for, tell people, you know, how they could sort of stay up to date with your latest offerings, because you're you're not like a, you're not a Whole Foods. Like you don't have yeah, you don't have certain vinegars all year round, right? It's all it's all about seasonality. Um, yeah. Maybe Jeff Bezos and I share haircut, and that's it. Um, right, it's, right. It's, uh, so, so how do uh, we find out? So uh, uh, definitely we try and keep uh, updates on what I'm doing and, and what we're putting out through Instagram. So at Lindera mm -hmm. Farms and then uh, linderafarms.com. And actually one of the first thing we do whenever we um, uh, put out a new product or something comes back into the stock is uh, send it out via email. So definitely I know emails will drive most people and myself included insane, but I try and be sparing with them and uh, we try and make sure they're informative. So definitely sign up for a list. No, no, no. I'm a new, listen. I send out the list every week. It is a That's very true. important newsletter. So cool and interesting. And I'm this I, guy talking about hot sauce. I sign up. I get your uh, e-blast. It's very informative. And I'm going to give you a plug that you should have done on your own. But because I like you, I'll do it for you. It is an amazing Mother's Day gift. So <laughs> if you haven't gotten anything yet from mom, I think now's the time to uh, give her a selection of vinegars or maybe some hot sauce. Maybe you want her head to explode. Who knows? Our, but uh, our, uh, our, our ramp salt and our ramp green chili hot sauce both just came in. So if you want her to see uh, what it is that Nikki is so excited about because she's in the food world and is required by law to be excited about them, check out our ramp. Right. All right, Danielle, thank you so much for your time today. Nikki, always a pleasure. Great seeing you. So did you get your fill of amazing things on this show of Industry Night? Uh, we talked to the Chief Inspector of North America of Michelin. He's a secret, but we learned about their secrets. We heard from Ryan Rattino, who just got two stars at Jaunt and also a star at Fresca. So exciting. And I really do think it's fascinating to learn about the business of what it's like to run a restaurant and then get a star as well. And then lastly, you got your Mother's Day wrapped up. Lindera Farms, vinegars, hot sauces, and barbecue sauce, and soy sauce. I mean, check it out. I love talking to Daniel. He always fills me with new information about the process and learning about foraging. It's always so much fun. So to all of you, thank you so much for joining me on Industry Night on Real Fun DC at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. Keep wearing that mask hand sanitized, socially distant, and before you know it, we'll all be together soon. Thanks so much. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis, Real Fun DC.